Open your Bibles with me to Zechariah chapter 2. Zechariah chapter 2. It's so good to see you all here today. And uh, last week was our graduation Sunday, but we had a guest speaker. So I'm speaking to our graduates and our young people today. So the rest of you folks can just go to sleep and uh, like you usually do anyway. But um, we're going to have a good time today. It's, I love it when we're just preaching through the scriptures and exactly where we are, God deals with that in the text. And that happens so many times. So let's start reading in Zechariah chapter 2 and verse 1. If you've not been here for our Zechariah study, Zechariah is considered the most difficult book in the Old Testament to understand. And as I read through these verses, you're going to see why. And I'm actually not going to explain this passage of Scripture this week. Next week is Father's Day. I haven't decided what I'm doing. Then the following week would probably be back to Zechariah. But um, we will explain this text down the road. But let's start reading it. Verse 1. I lifted up mine eyes and looked, and behold, a man with a measuring line in his hand. Then said I, Whither goest thou? And he said unto me, To measure Jerusalem, to see what is the breadth thereof and what is the length thereof. And behold, the angel that talked with me went forth, and another angel went out to meet him. And he said unto him, Run, speak to this young man, saying, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as towns without walls for the multitude of men and the cattle therein. For I, saith the Lord, will be unto her a wall of fire round about and will be the glory in the midst of her. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, help us this morning. Just a little explanation of the text and then a challenge for the young people. And Lord, I pray that you'll help us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, some of it is simple, a measuring line. We'd use a measuring tape. So this is a guy setting out the boundaries of the city. But remember that there are three Jerusalems mentioned in the Bible. There's the, the physical, earthly, historic Jerusalem. That would be the old city. There's the millennial Jerusalem that's being mentioned here in this text. And we know there's the millennial Jerusalem because there are no walls. Do you see that in verse uh, 4? As towns without walls. And we know that the new Jerusalem that comes down from from God out of heaven in Revelation chapter 21, it talks about the height of the walls. So there are three different Jerusalems. There's the historic, physical Jerusalem. I've been there. There's the millennial Jerusalem. I haven't been there yet because we're not in the millennium yet. And then there's the new Jerusalem that after the the heavens and the earth are passed away and there's the new heaven and the new earth, there's a new Jerusalem that comes down from God out of heaven. So those are the three Jerusalems. The second Jerusalem is being mentioned here, but that's not what I'm speaking on today. What I want you to notice is in verse 4. And said unto him, Run, speak to this young man. Speak to this young man. Zechariah was a young man. Now when you see that phrase, young man, I don't know what it is in the Hebrew, but what it would, what it would identify are a a man from infancy through about 20 years old. From infancy through 20. Now, how many of you are somewhere between infancy and 20? Would you raise your hands? Somewhere in between. All right. I won't ask how mature you're supposed to be in there, but that's your chronological age. And it's interesting that God chose Zechariah to be the last of this type of prophet in the world. It's an interesting thing. He had a specific message for Zechariah. And so I want to talk about this young man, and then I want to make it an application to our young people. So you young people, I want you to do this. I want you to pay attention. Okay? So I know you're tired. Some of you stayed up late last night, and it's hard to sit, and you probably had too much sugar already today, and so you're going to have to listen on purpose. All right? So do that. And I want this from all of the young people that are here in the room, all the way through our epic class, our young adults, I want you guys to realize how important you are in God's work and in God's plan. So let's look at this, and I want you to see a couple of things. First of all, he's identified as a young man, and that God had called him in spite of his circumstances. God had called Zechariah in spite of his circumstances. What are these circumstances? Well, God called him in spite of his youth. You ever, you ever thought, I'm too young to do this? It doesn't matter. I'm young. Now, some people, you guys are ready to move out from the time you're five years old. Right? Some people, they're just ready to go. Other young people are like that guy in Florida. 
that his parents had to take him to court to get him out of the house. That is, my dad would have had a bucket of cold water on me every time I laid down. I, I would not want wanted to stay in that place. But it's hilarious. So you have some kids that never want to leave, some kids that are ready to go from the time they're young. And yet, that's not the issue. Your personality is not the issue that God's dealing with. God expects every young person who has been under the teaching of the Word of God to accomplish things for Him. And sometimes I think that we have low expectations for our young people when they're so capable of accomplishing things. They're so capable. And so God understood that with Zechariah. He called him in spite of his youth. And then He called him in spite of his worldly education. He called him in spite of his worldly education. Now, how many of you young people have attended the public school? Did you raise your hands? How many of you have you've attended the public school? All right. How many of you heard something at the public school that would violate your Christian standing or Christian upbringing? Would you raise your hands? You've heard something there. So that is... How many of you at the Christian school heard something that violated what we would teach? That happened? You had to take a stand for the Lord. How many of you young people, you had interaction with friends or with classmates that would violate what you've taught or what you believe? Would you raise your hands? So all of us who have grown up in this world, we have grown up in a worldly environment. And the reason I know it's a worldly environment is because we are in the world. Isn't that brilliant? The connections that you can make. And so we have this world that we've grown up in. And sometimes we think that our world is more worldly than other world, any other world has ever been. I think Babylon was pretty bad. All the false gods, all the debauchery of that kingdom. It was not a good place to be. And Zechariah had received all of his training in Babylon. Now, if you understand the Bible, there are two cities. The, the Bible really is a tale of two cities. It's the city of Jerusalem, and that's mentioned some 300 times in the Bible. And then there's Babylon. That, that's the city of Satan, and that's mentioned something like 280 times in the Bible. So a lot of times you, you have this, this dichotomy of the city of God and the city of Satan. So Zechariah was trained in the city of Satan. That's not good. And yet God called him in spite of where he had been trained. He called him in spite of the world that he had been called out of. And so God called him in spite of his circumstances, in spite of his youth, in spite of his worldly education. And God called him in spite of popular opinion. So there were over a million Jews that were taken into captivity into Babylon and only about 40,000 went back. So what was the popular opinion? The popular opinion was stay in Babylon. Remember what had happened in those 70 years. Remember they had sung by the rivers of Babylon where we sat down and they, they said they wanted to sing a song of Zion in a strange land. They said, how could we sing a song of Zion in a strange land? And they took their harps and they hung them in the trees. And they said, we're not going to sing the songs of our God in this strange land. Well, that generation had passed. And now the people loved that land so much, they didn't want to go back into the land that God had given them. And so Zechariah went back. He went back with his grandfather. And he went back in spite of popular opinion, and God had called him in spite of popular opinion. Now, how many of you think that in our world today, in the Western world, the United States, that biblical ideas are popular? It's like the CrossFit guy that just got fired because he didn't want to celebrate Gay Pride Week. And he tweeted out, pride is a sin. I don't want to celebrate Gay Pride Week because pride is a sin. He didn't say gay pride is a sin. He said, pride is a sin. Now, how many Christians do we have here today? Would you raise your hands? How many of you know that pride is a sin? He got fired for that, and the head of CrossFit just cursed him and used profanity to describe his thinking. Pride is a sin. Isn't that, understand? Isn't that a simple thing to understand? So you're, what you're doing is you're going out into a world where God is calling you in spite of popular opinion, and that's what God had called Zechariah to do. And he had called him to, to present a message that was not popular in his day. So God called him in spite of his circumstances, in spite of his youth, in spite of his worldly education, and in spite of his popular opinion, or in spite of popular opinion. But the second thing that I want you to see is God called him because of his spiritual heritage. God called him because of his spiritual heritage. Look at what it says in verse, chapter 1 and verse 7. Upon the four and twentieth day of the eleventh month, which is the month Sebat, in the second year of Darius came the word of the Lord unto Zechariah, 
the son of Berechiah, the son of Edo, the prophet, saying. Now, in another passage, he's just called the son of Edo. The reason for that is there's no word in the Bible for grandson. All right? So, in another place, he's called the son of Edo. The reason he's called the son of Edo is because his father had probably died very young. And so, he would have been raised under the influence of his grandfather. His grandfather was a priest named Edo, and he was a priest that is listed in Nehemiah chapter 12 and verse 4 among the group of priests that had come from Babylon to come back and reestablish worship in Jerusalem. So he had a spiritual heritage. So God called him in spite of his circumstances, in spite of his, of his youth, in spite of his worldly education, in spite of popular opinion, God had called him back. But not only in spite of those things, but because of his spiritual heritage. And you young people today, you have a spiritual heritage that God has given you. Isn't that right? You have a spiritual heritage. So God called him in spite of his circumstances and God called him in, in because of his spiritual heritage. But then God called him to do six specific things. So let's look at those briefly, what God had called him to do. First of all, God called him to remind the people of some things. Look at chapter 1 in verse 2. The Lord hath been sore displeased with your fathers. Therefore say thou unto them, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, Turn ye unto me, saith the Lord of hosts, and I will turn unto you, saith the Lord of hosts. Be ye not as your fathers, unto whom the former prophets have cried, saying, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, Turn ye now from your evil ways and from your evil doings. But they did not hear nor hearken unto me, saith the Lord. And so he goes on and he challenges them. So God called them, called them to do six specific things. Firstly, to remind them. To remind the nation of past failures. To remind the nation of past failures. He said, don't be like your fathers. The prophets went to them. They rejected the fathers. You need, to, you need to stop that. You need to get away from that. Not only that, to remind the nation that God still loves them. To remind the nation that God still loves them. Look at chapter 2, verse 8. Now look at verse 7. Chapter 2 and verse 7, Deliver thyself, O Zion, that dwellest with the daughter of Babylon. For thus saith the Lord of hosts, After the glory hath he sent me unto the nations, which spoiled you, for he that toucheth you toucheth the apple of his eye. So what is God telling Zechariah to do? To tell the nation that God still loves them. In spite of the destruction, in spite of the captivity, in spite of the punishment, God still loves them. So he wanted Zechariah to remind the nation of their past failures, to remind the nation that God still loves them, and then to remind the nation that God still has a plan for them. God still has a plan for them. Look at chapter 1 and verse 17. Cry yet, saying, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, My cities through prosperity shall yet be spread abroad, and the Lord shall yet comfort Zion and shall yet choose Jerusalem. So he's reminding them, he, I'm sorry, he's telling Zechariah to remind them of their past failures, that God still loves them, and that God still has a plan for them. But not only that, God has called them to remind the people, but he also wants Zechariah to rouse them, to rouse them to believe God, to believe the promises of God, and to finish the work. To rouse them to believe the promises of God and to finish the work. So it's a really important thing that they had received the promises of God. They had been sent back to establish the nation again after the captivity. They had started the work. They had received some opposition from Samballat and Tobiah. They had sent counselors against them and they had stopped the work. So now Zechariah is telling them, remember what you've been sent to do. Finish the work to rouse them to the work. Then the next thing, so... Six things to remind them, to rouse them, and then to restore the theocratic spirit. What is that? To remind them what they need to do to restore the rule of God in their nation. Now, how many of you know that God's the head of the nation of Israel? Even though they had asked for a king, God is still the head of the nation of Israel. So what is he telling them to do? Stop looking at men and look to God. Stop looking to men for leadership and look to God for leadership. That was his message to them. 
to restore that theocratic spirit, and then to rekindle the nation's faith and hope during the coming trouble. The trouble wasn't over for Israel. And so Zechariah's job was to say, look, there's going to be trouble ahead, but you need to have faith in God. And that, that was his message. Then, so to remind them of their past failures, that God still loves them and that God has a plan for them, to rouse them to believe in God and to finish the work, to restore the theocratic spirit, the recognition of God's government, then to rekindle the nation's faith and hope during the coming trouble. And then, letter E, to recognize the true worship of God. To recognize the true worship of God. So people had failed in the way they were worshiping. Now, how many of you recognize God cares about how you worship Him? God cares about how you worship Him. And, and we, we might talk about that some more in a minute. But then, to remove the idolatry from the nation. To remove the idolatry from the nation. Look at Zechariah chapter 14. Look at verse 20. And that day shall there be upon the bells of the horses holiness unto the Lord. And the pots in the Lord's house shall be like the bowls before the altar. Yea, every pot in Jerusalem and in Judah shall be holiness unto the Lord of hosts. And all they that sacrifice shall come and take of them and seethe therein. And in that day there shall be no more Canaanite in the house of the Lord of hosts. What does that mean, no more Canaanite in the house of the Lord of hosts? We would say, there's a lot of ways that we would say it, but unsaved people in the church, liberal professors in the seminaries, see, people who don't actually believe in the house of God. So when Jesus Christ establishes His kingdom and ultimately restores the world to the pre-fall condition of worship and righteousness and holiness... When he does that, there will be no false worship. And of course, idolatry is worshiping anything other than God. It's putting priority to anything other than God. Now, I'm watching a few of you. You're zoning out. Focus on this. I promise. I'm, I'm going to be like Elizabeth Taylor said to her seventh husband. I promise I won't keep you long. Right? Harding told a version of that joke last week, didn't he? All right. But just, just focus on this for just a second. So God called them to do six specific things to remind them, to remind the nation of past failures, the nation that God still loved them, the nation that God has a plan for them, to rouse them to believe God and to finish the work, and to restore the theocratic spirit, the recognition of God's government, to rekindle the nation's faith and hope during the coming trouble, to reorganize the true worship of God, and to remove idolatry from the nation. But remember what we're talking about. We're talking about a young guy, a young man, a very young man that God had called to do this. I'm talking about people your age. That's what God wanted, you, wanted him to do. And then God called him, listen to this, knowing that it would mean his death. God called him knowing that it would mean his death. Go to keep your place in Zechariah, but go to Matthew chapter 23. Look at verse 33. Matthew 23, verse 33. This is the message of the gentle shepherd, Jesus Christ. Ye serpents, ye generation of vipers, how can ye escape the damnation of hell? You know, it's interesting. Someone tweeted about, um, there's, there's a New York Times writer where a business owner in Tennessee had put up a, a statement that he didn't want to endorse the gay agenda. And so this New York Times writer said, how can you do that in the name of a Jesus that loved and accepted homosexuals? I think that's probably a guy that worships a Jesus, but he's never read the Bible. It's so interesting. This is the Jesus of the Bible. And so look at what he says. 
Ye serpents, ye generation of vipers, how can ye escape the damnation of hell? Wherefore, behold, I send unto you prophets and wise men and scribes, and some of them ye shall kill and crucify, and some of them shall ye scourge in your synagogues and persecute them from city to city, that upon you may come all the righteous blood shed upon the earth from the blood of righteous Abel, okay, Cain and Abel, from the blood of righteous Abel, Unto the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom ye slew between the temple and the altar. So what Jesus Christ is saying is Jesus is identifying all of the martyrs of the Old Testament between Abel and Zechariah. Zechariah was the last martyr of the Old Testament. And so Jesus Christ is identifying the bounds of that, but he is saying that this is what happened to Zechariah. So imagine Zechariah is there prophesying. He's prophesying to the people of what God is going to do in the future, what God has done in the past, and motivating them to finish the work. So I can just picture him walking from his home to the temple every day, from his home to the temple, to see whether or not the work has been completed. And the work was completed. It was finished. Now, the new temple wasn't nearly as glamorous and as beautiful as Solomon's temple, but it was a temple. The glory of God was not in the temple. Remember, the glory of God had left. And the glory would not be in the temple again until that glory came bound in flesh and bones in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we beheld His glory. The glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth, John 1. So Jesus Christ, the glory of God, would enter the temple. And what happened the next time the glory of God entered the temple? He made a whip. And he drove out the money changers because God's place had become a place of merchandise when it's supposed to have been a place of prayer. And so Jesus Christ, when the glory came back into the temple, he cleansed the temple at the beginning of his ministry. He did it again right before his crucifixion. And he said, this is not the way that worship is supposed to be done. But as he is describing the way that the Jews had received the prophets, he mentions Zechariah. On one of those occasions when this prophet who had been preaching to the people, preaching to the people, preaching to the people, as he's making his way to the temple, they grabbed him and they killed him. and said, we will no longer hear your message. So God called this young man in spite of his circumstances. God called him because of his spiritual heritage. God called him because he had a plan. He had something specifically for him to do. He had called him to do those six specific things. And God called him knowing it would mean his death. Isn't it interesting that though he is remembered by Jesus in the Scriptures, we have the book by his name. So even though they tried to stop his prophecy, God made sure that that book was in the canon of Scripture. So even though they killed him, we can still study that book today. And understand what God is going to do with Israel, what God is going to do in the future. And he was able to prophesy so much about the coming Messiah. So what does this have to do with you, young people? How are we going to take this message of Zechariah and this young man? How are we going to take it and apply it to you? Well, first of all, God has called you in spite of your circumstances. God has a, has a job and a mission for you in spite of yours. You, you don't understand what I'm going through, Pastor. You don't understand how hard life is. Well, compared to the rest of your experience, your life might be hard. Compared to the lives of people throughout history, your life's pretty good. Right? You're not wondering where your next meal is going to come from. It's going to happen here in a few minutes. Whenever the long-winded preacher stops talking, you're going to be able to go and you're going to be able to get some food. You're not worried about your next meal. Amen? Now, you might be worried about what she cooked. You know, my mom would make liver. And dad taught me the best way to eat liver. Smother it in ketchup. I don't think... You've never made liver, have you? Since we've been married? Hallelujah. This is why we're still married, see? <laughs> So you're not worried, other than that it might be liver, you're not worried about your next meal. Isn't that a wonderful thing that we're not worried about where our food's going to come from? But what are the, some other circumstances that you could be in that could cause you to have a struggle? What are your circumstances? Well, it could be you might have a family that doesn't want to get behind your service for the Lord. Well, God can still use you. You know, your, your school situation, your friends, your work situation. Obviously, we have a culture that's not for it. 
So God's called you in spite of your circumstances. And, you know, whether it's your, your education, you know, whether it's a secular education or a Christian education that might violate some of the things that you've been taught, God's called you in spite of all of those things. And then God has called you not only in spite of your circumstances, but God has called you because of your spiritual heritage. Do you know that an investment has been made in you? An investment has been made in you. Um, let me just talk about me. Stop being so self-centered. This is about me. Now, I spend a lot of time studying to be able to give you information that will help you. The Bible says, Let the elders that rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially they that labor in the word and in doctrine. So your parents labor. So I mean, the, the, the jobs that your dads have, that is labor. It is hard, hard work. That's labor. That's the way the pastor is supposed to study. So as hard as a bricklayer would work building a wall, that's how hard the pastor is supposed to work studying the Scriptures. And I've tried to do that for you. I try not to waste time. I try to actually do that. Do I do it just because I enjoy it? Well, actually, yeah. I really do enjoy the study. I like it. But sometimes it's just work. And I do it so that I can grow, and I hope that I am. I know some preachers that quit when they're 60 or 61, I think because they've run out of something to say. Well, if you keep learning, you won't run out of anything to say. Amen? Now, I know some of you hope I run out of something to say this morning. But don't worry. There is a limit to this. But guys, the, the work that I put in, the study that I make, so often it's because I'm answering a question for you. It's so I know what's happening in the culture. I'm going to work hard to invest in you. I mentioned it last week. All of those people, whether it's all the way from the nursery, through um, cubbies, through Sparks, through TNT, through the youth department, and everything in between, the Sunday school classes, all around that. All of that labor. You know, none of, nobody just walks in and says, I wonder what I'm going to do today. No, there's work and preparation that's gone into that for you. And then if you take all of that labor that I'm talking about, that's one one-thousandth of the labor your parents have put into you. God has called you because of your spiritual heritage. You're prepared for this. See, now I'm glad that we have guests. I'm glad that we have people coming to the church all, all the time. And if you're new, this is, this is the goal that we have for you. I'm talking about you young people that have grown up here. This is your, this is your Christian home. You've been invested in. You have a spiritual heritage. And God has invested that in you, expecting a return. And that return comes from you recognizing your calling to go into the world. And what are you supposed to do in this world? God has called you in spite of your circumstances. God's called you because of your spiritual heritage. And God has called you to do six specific things. To remind your generation of some things. To remind your generation of past failures. To remind your generation of past failures. Okay, now, I am gonna, this, this message is going to be shorter than most of mine. We have baptism. We have meetings after the service. But I want you to get this. You live in a nation and among a Western culture that's made a lot of mistakes. And you hear about a lot of these mistakes through the filter of what's called social justice. The concept of social justice has made its way into Christianity. So if you, you might go to a Christian school or a Christian university and social justice has made its way into that. I was at Midwestern University, a Southern Baptist seminary in uh, Kansas City maybe two years ago. And they've built the Spurgeon Library. So Spurgeon's actual library is there in this beautiful facility. And it's a, if you ever get to see it, you really need to. It's fantastic. And so I was there with another pastor and I was showing him some things. And so this young man who works there they had just, it was right during a big Southern Baptist Convention meeting, so they had a bunch of Spurgeon's books out on the tables and they had been explaining them. And I saw Spurgeon's copy of Wealth of Nations by Adam Smith. 
It was written in 1776. And it really is the foundation for modern capitalism. It's how we understand the, the, the significance of capital and investment and all of those things. It's, it's an excellent work, and Spurgeon loved that book. They had paintings all around the top that they've commissioned, and they, they pointed to all these different things. So there was an orphanage and these different things that Spurgeon had done. And Spurgeon, probably the, the thing that Spurgeon was uh, the proudest of was his orphanage. He loved investing in those children. But this young man that was showing us the pictures said that Spurgeon had 12 social justice ministries. And I was this close from saying, I didn't know Spurgeon was a communist. But I did say this, because you understand social justice is Marxism. Social justice has nothing to do with the Bible, has nothing to do with capitalism. Social justice is complete Marxism. So every time you hear about social justice in your church, every time you hear about social justice at your school, just think this, Marxist, Marxist, Marxist. Because there's no such thing as social justice. There's only justice, and you don't want it. The Bible talks about Jesus, that He might be the just and the justifier of them that believe. If you don't believe in Jesus Christ, if you're not under that, the, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, the just one, you will receive justice, and that justice is your eternity in a Christless hell. That's justice. But this concept of social justice, what I did say was, you mentioned social justice, but you also just said that he loved Adam Smith's Wealth of Nations. I think maybe you need to find out the difference. See, we live in a world, young people, you live in a world where you're going to be told about the mistakes of the past. Things like slavery. How many of you... Now, I know that you probably haven't heard this because it's never mentioned. It's a secret of our past. How many of you have been told that America had slaves? Would you raise your hands? You've been told? No way. See, here's the problem. What the world is doing through this social justice concept is they're trying to destroy Western culture because of the sins of its past. Slavery was a horrible blight on our history. Amen? But slavery was not just a horrible blight on American history. It's a horrible blight on world history. And it happens today. If Boko Haram in Africa is enslaving Christian girls every day today and using them as sex slaves every day today, the United States, we don't do that. Western culture doesn't do that, and we haven't done it for hundreds of years. It's wrong. Slavery is wrong, but that is not who we are today. Amen? Isn't that right? So these are the, 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 the types of things. You'll hear about something called toxic masculinity because the greatest problem in the world today is guys are too manly. Insanity, right? It's insanity. There's no such thing as toxic. Imagine if I stood up and said the problem in the world today is toxic femininity. That's even hard to say. Toxic femininity. Do you think that would go over well? No, no, because people are crazy. They're crazy. Are there bad guys in the world? Yeah. Are there bad ladies in the world? Yeah. Yeah. So what do we do? We have laws. And that comes down to, I just don't have a lot of time, but young people, I want you to get this. So you're living in a world where they're taking this utopia and they're comparing, so whether it's in your school, in your textbooks, this is something that your Christian teachers, so if you're in the public school, we have many public school teachers here. What they're trying to do is take that text that they're given and teach you from it in a way that doesn't destroy your ability to think. That's what our teachers are trying to do for you. 
But understand that those textbooks are written from a social justice perspective. So if you go to the Christian school, some of those textbooks would be influenced by that. In the public school, they all are. Okay? From a social justice perspective. Because the textbook uh, companies base all of their textbooks on the needs of California and Texas. Sydney, Ohio has this much say in what goes in those textbooks. Am I right, teachers? So we have that much say. So you need to understand the social justice foundation of these textbooks. And what these social justice warriors, what they do is they take Western culture and they compare it to this utopia. And now remember, that's Thomas More's utopia. That word utopia, it means no place. It doesn't exist. So they compare the society that is to a society that never was, and so we always fail. We always fail. And so they don't have a foundation of righteousness. They have a foundation of Marxist ideology that wants to undermine the foundation of Western culture. What's the foundation of Western culture? Number one, the home. The husband as the head of the home, the wife as a strong, submissive wife, leading the husband and wife together as one flesh, leading children that they require to obey. That's the foundation of Western society. All right? Also, the Judeo-Christian worldview. The Judeo-Christian worldview. That's the foundation of our government. That's the foundation of Western society. And so this Marxist ideology, their goal is to undermine it. How do they undermine it? By not telling you things like this. Um, how many of you have seen the IBM commercials with Watson, the computer? Have you, any of you seen Watson? Right? That's named after a guy named Thomas J. Watson. Thomas J. Watson was the head of IBM for about 40 years. And he had worked for NCR under John Patterson in Dayton, and he became head of IBM. He wasn't a eugenicist. He wasn't really even political. All he cared about was profit. And so what Watson did was he helped the Nazis to gather up the Jews by using these punch cards, these hollerith machines and these punch cards. And the IBM Corporation, along with the Carnegie Endowment, the Carnegie Charity, the Carnegie Trust, what they did was they developed these cards that would identify people by their race, by their religion. How in the world did they round up all of these Nazis, all of these Jehovah's Witnesses, all of these gypsies? How did they know who they were? Because the purpose of the Hollerith machines, 1896, I think, was the date. Hollerith first used his machines for the census in the United States, then the census in Russia. And so what they were able to do was now collate this information in ways that had never happened in history. But where they really developed and refined their ability to um, collate information was in Nazi Germany. And so IBM, the using these Hollerith machines, they leased these machines to the Nazi regime. And every concentration camp had a Hollerith machine. So what was able to happen? They were able to identify all of these people to incarcerate them and then torture them. There was a, another endowment by the Rockefeller Foundation... And what the Rockefeller Foundation wanted to do was the Rockefeller Foundation wanted to purify the human race. The Carnegie Foundation wanted to purify the human race. The Carnegie Foundation, that's why they helped to develop these cards for the Nazis. But they also founded, were, were big in this movement called eugenics. Eugenics. So the Rockefeller Foundation, also big in eugenics, and eugenics is, an, is the idea that we need to purge the race of unfavorables. 
And where did that idea come from? It started with Thomas Malthus, Malthusian economics. We have overpopulation. Malthus started then in the late 1700s. Where it really became popular was through Charles Darwin, Origin of the Species, by natural selection. But the origin of the species, it was to get rid of unfavored races. That's the title. Unfavored races. What are the unfavored races? Dark people. And so that grew into this horrible Arianism. Do you know who was a, a, a proponent of Arianism? How about Theodore Roosevelt? So all of the people that are promoted by your social justice people in your textbooks, whether it's Franklin Roosevelt, eugenicist, Woodrow Wilson, eugenicist, Theodore Roosevelt, a eugenicist, all of these progressive heroes, they all wanted to destroy unfavored races through this thing called eugenics. Out of that came Planned Parenthood with Margaret Sanger. Remember, Margaret Sanger had an affair with H.G. Wells. H.G. Wells was one of the progressives that was identifying this system that would destroy unfavored races. You say, well, that's in the past. That doesn't happen today. 70% of the black babies are aborted in many communities today. 70% of black children are aborted. To, uh, aborted. Let's use the right word. Killed. Murdered. Destroyed. How many of you want black babies to die? I want them to flourish and be saved and have a good life and bring glory to the Lord Jesus Christ because we're all of the same blood. But young people, do you see what happens with the social justice warriors? What they have you thinking is that conservative Christians are racists when the very foundation of progressive culture is violently racist. See, what you need to be able to do is inform your nation, I'm sorry, your generation about the sins of the past. Because here's what's happening today. There are children that are being aborted because they have Down syndrome. There are children that are being aborted because they are male. There are children that are aborted because they are female. You know where the war on women is really taking place? China. Because they're killing the babies before they're born. See, as young people... You need to know these things. And this history is being hidden from you. Somebody might be saying, he's a conspiracy freak. It's not a conspiracy. They told us they were going to do it. And then they did it. But here's the problem. The Rockefeller Trust, the Carnegie Trust. Who built the libraries in all the cities? Carnegie. Who determined what books would be in those libraries? Carnegie. The Rockefeller Trust today, do you know what they run? UNESCO. The United Nations Education Fund. So all the stuff that ends up in the classrooms, all this social justice garbage, these walkouts from schools to stop you and I from being able to protect our families with guns, that all comes from this eugenicist, globalist concept. And so we as believers, we need to know what's going on in the world and be able to communicate these things by talking about the failures of the past. The failures of the past are many. So God has called you to do six specific things. Specific things. Remind your generation of the past failures. And then to remind your generation that God still loves them. You know... So much for being short. Um, do you know what would break my heart almost as much as seeing you walk away from the Lord? Is to have this idea that there are groups of people that God loves less. Because of their race, their religion, their socioeconomic achievement. I remember something that I saw... Um, it's a businessman, black businessman from New Orleans. And someone asked, how do you help the young people in New Orleans? Because he works with young entrepreneurs. And he said, I don't ask 
a young black boy, what do you want to be when you grow up? I don't ask him that. I ask him, what kind of business do you want to own when you grow up? Isn't that awesome? Can you imagine growing up in a community where more than 70%, we've already talked about the 70% of babies that are killed, but then those that are born, 70% of them don't have a dad in the home to help them to have their self-worth. All of those things. What has done that? Marxism, this progressive ideology that tries to tell people they're not able to think. They're not able. 15% of the kids in Chicago can read at grade level. In Boston, it's worse. In Albany, it's worse. So it's really important that we understand that we have a system that's destroying these young people's lives. Do you know what you young people need to understand? That we're all created by a God who loves us and loves us so much He sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross. But that's not the only thing they need to know. You see, everyone around us need to understand that God has established laws in the universe. God has built consequences into the universe. So if you have an economic system that violates God's principles, it's going to fail. If you have a political system that violates God's principles, it is ultimately going to fail and it's going to do harm. So what we need to do is we need to be representatives of the truth in our generation, understanding that it's going to cost us something. Homosexuality hurts people. It hurts them. We don't hate them. We love them. That lifestyle hurts them. God loves them. He wants them to be saved. In 1 Corinthians, it says, as were some of you, talking about effeminate, talking about homosexuality. God wants them to be saved. We don't hate them. We love them. But we have a world that says, if you don't um, enthusiastically endorse their behavior, you're a bigot, you're a racist, and you need to lose your job. See, we need a generation of people that understand they've been called to represent Christ in this culture need to remind them of past failures, remind them that God still loves them, and remind your generation that God still has a plan for them. And then we need to rouse them to believe in God. You know, the new atheists, they want to tell you that God doesn't exist. They want to challenge you. Get them to believe in God. Help them. And then rouse them to finish the work. Do you know that your generation still needs to be one to Christ? Do you know that your friends still need the Lord? You need to be stirred up to do that. You need to be more excited about giving someone the gospel than the next video game. Don't be distracted. Enjoy the video game, but also enjoy leading people to Christ. Then, to restore the theocratic spirit, you need to understand that you're not your own. You've been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Help your friends to do that. You know, you young people, Pastor Nathan's going to have a meeting, maybe he already has, about the dress for Kings Island. Well, you girls, if someone says, I can't believe he, I, I can't believe that, 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 you other girls need to say, well, you just need to cover up. Why are you wanting to show guys that? You see? Be strong. Be strong. Um, then, to rekindle your generation's faith and hope during the coming trouble. It's not going to get easier. We have a world that's turning away from God. And then... What, what Zechariah tried to get the people to do to reorganize the worship of God, you need to help your generation to understand it does matter what you believe. See, young people, one of the issues that, that you will deal with, sometimes your parents, and parents, you know that I, I never undermine you. Never. But some of you are just wrong on this. You'll say, I'm going to allow my child to date this person because they're a Christian. They're not just like us, but they're a Christian. You need to make sure that if you're dating someone, and I don't think you should date in high school at all, just, what, are you going to get married? That's the purpose of dating, right? You're, how many of you are going to get married this week? The purpose of dating is to find a mate, right? I don't want you all mating yet. Do I need to go farther? No? Would that be good if I didn't? Yes. So when you do, 
begin dating, make sure that person believes like you believe. Marriage is hard enough when you have the same beliefs. When you don't have the same beliefs, where are you going to, what church are you going to raise the kids in? Does the Bible have anything to say about that? So you need to help to reorganize the concept of worship in your mind and then remove idolatry from your generation. I mean, you guys got a lot of idols. Got a lot of idols. Make sure that worship is of God. And then remember that this may cost you your life. Ultimately, it may cost you your life. This past week was the anniversary of D-Day, June 6th. A couple hundred thousand men. It's the largest invasion in history. And so many of them lost their lives. Can you imagine getting off of that boat? And you're going to have to go through the water. You can't run real fast through the water knowing that up on those cliffs are snipers and you're running watching the guy fall all around you. They're just falling. You need to understand when you look back at your friends that, that claimed they were Christians, how many of them have fallen by the wayside? They've fallen. So spiritually, you need to understand that you're in a fight. And then physically, it, the way the world is going, it may ultimately cost you your life. But I can promise you this, there's an eternity and it's worth it. It is worth it. Are you glad we have Zechariah to study today? That's a young man that God called. And that's what you young people need to recognize. That God has a purpose and a plan for you. Even if it costs you your life, it is more than worth it in eternity. Man, we just live for today. The world mocks this idea of an eternity. But there is an eternity. I'm so glad Jesus Christ died on the cross to pay for our sins. You know what I'm thankful for? That God doesn't tell you to go and kill somebody because they believe different than you. Is that a difference? We go and tell people, Jesus loves you. He died for you. Other religions go and say, God told me to kill you for Him. You know God never tells you to kill anybody for Him? Ever? Have, have people in the name of Christ done that? Yeah, the Crusades. It was an abomination. Wickedness violates biblical truth. God never tells you to go kill somebody for Him. God tells you to go and say, Jesus, someone died for you. Jesus Christ, He loves you so much. He loves you so much. And then the question is, are we willing to die for them? Amen? God has a plan for us. Young people, God called that young man Zechariah and He established a model for you guys. I hope you're thinking about it, what God has for you. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the truth of your word.